Hey, everybody, it's Barry. I just want to let you know, this is one of my favorite episodes with one of my favorite comedians of all time, Rita Rudner from February 5th, 2017. I hope you enjoy it. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I remember some people used to tell me, they'd say, could you write jokes for me? Because I could do the jokes, but I just really don't want to hang around there all night and, you know, try jokes at 2 a.m. I used to say, that's the point of it. You've got to write your own jokes. You've got to hang out there till 2 a.m. And they said, well, we don't want to do that. And I said, well, then don't be a comedian. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. So excited here with Rita Rudner, and I can't think of a better way to start than give her a glowing introduction, wake her up at the end. Okay, here goes. Beginning her career as a Broadway dancer, Rita Rudner has flourished for over three decades, selling millions of tickets all over the world. She rose to fame due to a variety of HBO specials and countless late-night appearances on shows like The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, which established Rudner as one of the premier female comics to emerge from the comedy boom in the 80s. Rudner was born in Miami and after graduating from high school at 15, headed to New York City to embark on a career as a dancer. She appeared in several musicals, including the original Broadway productions of Follies and Mac and Mabel. Rudner took a full-time leap from chorus lines to punch lines in the early 80s as a frequent guest on both Late Night with David Letterman and The Tonight Show. Her first solo HBO special, Rita Rudner's One Night Stand, was nominated for several awards, as was her BBC television show, which later appeared on A&E. Rita's two one-hour specials for HBO, Born to be Mild and Married Without Children, were rating standouts. Rudner has filled Carnegie Hall three times, Los Angeles' old Universal Amphitheater twice, which held 6,000 people, and has performed sellout tours of Australia and England as well. Rudner has written a total of five books, including two fiction novels, 
tickled Pink and turning the tables. In 89, Rudner married her writing partner, British producer-director Martin Bergman. The two of them wrote Peter's Friends, which starred Emma Thompson and won the Peter Sellers Award for Best Comedy Film, Best Ensemble Acting, and was also nominated for the Writers Guild Award for Best Original Screenplay. The couple also co-wrote A Weekend in the Country, starring Jack Lemmon, Dudley Moore, Richard Lewis, and Rita herself. In 2003, Rita launched from Las Vegas her first syndicated daily show, Ask Rita, which won Rudner the Top Program Host Award from the Women in Television and Radio. She's written for two Academy Awards with host Steve Martin, has performed for former President Obama, and recently recorded a special Rita Rudner live from Las Vegas for PBS as well as BBC Radio. In 2016, Rudner co-starred in Act 3 at the prestigious Laguna Playhouse opposite Charles Shaughnessy, also directed by her husband Martin. In 2000, she was asked to fill in for six weeks at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. She was so successful, the run turned into six months, and the MGM built Rita her own 450-seat theater. Since 2001, Rudner has performed extensively in Las Vegas, selling almost two million tickets and becoming the longest-running solo comedy show in Las Vegas history. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Rita Rudner. Hello, thank you for having me. I have to tell you something, because you were saying about all the people that I'm friendly with and going out of your lanes and in different lanes. And Do you know who I was really good friends with, who you'd be surprised to know? Sam Kinison. And Sam and I used to get together when we were on the road. And I remember once uh, we were in Tampa together and he called me up and we were hanging out afterwards and we were talking. And I just, I thought he was so funny and he was such a nice guy. Sam and I were on the Rodney Dangerfield special. But it was me and Sam and Louie and Bob Saget and um, Sam and I got friendly. And he was just such a wonderful guy. And I even, uh, Martin, my husband Martin Bergman, because we write movies too, we wrote a movie with Sam in mind and uh, it never really Really came to fruition but it would have been so funny because I, I, I just loved working with him and I don't have many regrets in my life and I have silly regrets so this is one you want to hear one a silly regret of course there was a really good picture of um, Sam and me and uh, we didn't make a copy of it and when we wanted to do the movie for HBO we sent it along to uh, with the script to HBO and they didn't make the movie and they never sent my picture of me and Sam back and it was such a nice picture and I really wish I had it but so that's not a big regret and I still have my picture with me and Sam in my mind but it's interesting that you mentioned that special because I did a podcast with Louis Anderson Louis and I are great friends an amazing man again you're friends with Louis who is more in your lane mm -hmm. and friends with Sam and you know who else I work a lot with who I love Brad Garrett and he makes me laugh all the time <laughs> there's nobody who can be funnier and dirtier than brad garrett <laughs> and bob saget another friend of mine absolutely <laughs> so i never think that oh my gosh you shouldn't be dirty if you're doing you know i hate that kind of thing i think if it's funny it's funny and if it's not funny it's not funny and you should be funny whichever way you want to be funny and if you're dirty and funny that's good and if you're not dirty and funny that's good too 
So, as long as you're funny. So I remember Rodney Dangerfield asking me to do that special too because um, he was another good friend of mine. And in fact, he bought a joke from me, the only joke I ever sold. Well, I worked with Steve Martin too um, on the Oscars, but the, like a joke where you go, you want to buy this joke. And uh, he gave me $50 for giving him this joke. He was such a nice guy. And he saw me on stage and he pulled me aside and he said... Um, I saw your set. And I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah, it takes a long time. Sometimes you never make it. I said, oh, well, thank you for the, uh, <laughs> thank you for the optimism. <laughs> he said, but you want to be on my special. I think you're really funny. I said, yes, I do want to be on your special. Thank you very much. And he put me on his special. So I spoke to Louie about that special. Rodney asked Louie to do that same special. He says, Louie, I know you've been on television and done a bunch of things, but I want you to close the show. And Louie's like, I don't know. You got Saget. You got Sam on the show. It's you're going to close the show. It's going to be great. Everybody will love you. And so Sam goes on somewhere in the middle of the show, in Louis's mind, destroys the place. That was his big breakout like special, yeah. If you could dream of the kind of performance you want and you're in a blue comic, the only place you could do a show would be on this special. And Louis said after he saw the response to Sam, he got up. And he just started walking around danger fields outside and he kept saying to himself, what have I done? I accept this spot last and this guy kills and there's nothing left for me here in the show. And then he started talking himself back and said, listen, you're Louis Anderson. Just do what you do. The audience will come around and they'll be with you. And it was a real breakout for him. For you, obviously, when people were putting shows together, they're not putting the show together where it's like Kinnison and Saget and Dice Clay, and then let's put Rita on after. They would be cognizant of the trajectory of the show or where there's sometimes where they'd be like, okay, Rita, you're going on after Dice. This is something that really happened. Uh, my very first performance on HBO, it was Pat Benatar. And Pat Benatar was a house performer and managed by Catch a Rising Star at the time. But I remember Andy Kaufman was on it. I was, uh, and I it was introducing me, and it was the uh, I was the only new comedian on it, and it was, I did like three minutes or something like that. And um, I was waiting in the trailer, and the producer Pat, John Moffat and Pat, Pat Lee. Lee. Yes, okay. So Moffat and Lee, they came back and they said, you know, you're on right after Andy Kaufman, and we don't think it's going to fly because he's going to disrupt the audience and if the audience, you know, they don't know where they are by the time Andy Kaufman is finished and there's going to be somebody heckling him from the audience and then, you know, you're, you're so mild. So nobody is looking now. Why don't we just sneak you on right now? You do your three minutes and do it before Andy Kaufman. And I said, yes, please. And um, I went on and I did my three minutes and whatever, you know, my jokes that I'd written so far, they worked. And then Andy Kaufman came on and absolutely destroyed the audience. Audience, with somebody heckling him from the audience. Not knowing if it was a real heckler or a planted heckler. Oh, it was his his manager, I think. Bob Zamuda. Yeah, I think that was, somebody was heckling, and they were calling each other's names, and he was saying, and the whole place was in disarray, and I went up to Pat Lee and said, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for thinking of me in that way. So that was a very lucky uh, little thought that she had. You know how there's certain comedians who put an opening act on before them that sets them up perfectly and then there's those comedians that put on the guy that's the standing ovation guy and you often say to yourself why are you putting on the guy who's getting the standing ovation before you and when i ask them the question they always say if i'm going to get better 
I don't want to play tennis with somebody who's my equal or less than me. I want somebody better than me or who perceived could be better than me. I've never found a comedian who played tennis. <laughs> <laughs> it never occurred to me. I don't use an opening act um, because I think that I remember I was an opening act for a long time and it was so difficult. I remember I was an opening act for Julio Iglesias and a lot of the Sergios. I can't remember which Sergios, you know, and I would be, and they didn't really want to see me and they wanted to see the real person, you know, and I'd be there and they'd go, and now please welcome. And everyone would go, yay, 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 Rita Rudner. Uh, you know, because they want to see Julio Iglesias. That's who they bought a ticket for. That's who they want to see. So I don't, I, unless, like my daughter opens for me now because she's my daughter and I love her. Molly Bergman, her first release came out on iTunes entitled California Girl. Yes, and all of the proceeds, actually I do play tennis and she's on the tennis team. <laughs> and uh, all the proceeds go to a tennis foundation that we support uh, in Las Vegas because she grew up playing tennis in Las Vegas. So I, I never thought of that. I just always feel sorry for opening acts because that's, who, that's not who people want to see. That's not who they came to see. So I just do more. I just do 20 more minutes. Does your daughter, after she gets through performing in front of you, say, yeah, I don't know why I'm doing this. Nobody wants to see me. No, because she loves she because I say she's my daughter <laughs> and everyone wants to see her. But lately she does a double act, too, with another uh, singer who's very good. Um, but she does in she does restaurants and things like that. And I always and she says, uh, I'm going to sing four songs. Don't worry, they're short. And uh, <laughs> And she's and she's good. So it's like a nice, nice little thing. And also, I never, you know, whenever I do have an opening act, when somebody insists that I have an opening act and, and places that I'm going, I always want to listen carefully to the opening act the, the first time because I want to make sure that something I do doesn't step on something they've done and it destroys the laugh that I would have gotten. So I always have to manipulate my routine around if somebody has the same frames of reference. Does your daughter, after a show, come back in the dressing room and say, listen, I got my check and I think I deserve a little more than this. We take her shopping. <laughs> <laughs> she buys a new dress. She's happy. She's a uh, low maintenance. <laughs> so far, I think I think she's about to get high maintenance, but she's still low maintenance. Right now, she has to. She's in honors biology. She has to worry about that. And is it hard seeing your daughter start her career and knowing how hard it was for you in the beginning? I tell her, but nobody knows how hard it is. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. It's a good thing. And I think my philosophy of um, human existence boiled down is if you've got a passion in your life, you're going to be okay because you have something that drives you forward and that you want to do every day. I've been doing comedy for what, 30 years and I still want to do it every day. I still love writing a new joke in my notebook. I love writing a new essay. Martin and I love writing movies. So I loved it. And when I was a dancer, I got up to dance every day. I always wanted to dance. That's all I want to do. And I tried her in dance and she hated it. And tennis, she liked it. Music, she loved it. And she just loves it. In fact, we can't get her to stop singing, uh, playing the guitar and the piano in her room at night. We have to make her go to sleep. So I just feel that um, as long as you have something that you really love that keeps you going, it doesn't matter. It could be a hobby that you love. It could be collecting stamps. If it's something that really you're passionate about, you're going to be okay. It's always been my feeling that if you're a comedian, and you're doing the right kind of comedy. You could be performing 
in a bathroom in Peoria, Illinois and videotaping it and sending it out and people will find you. But when you're a musician, you could be getting standing ovations in the main room of Peoria and it's very hard to make it. But as long as you love what you're doing, then it's okay. If you love playing in your bathroom in Peoria and that's as long as you're doing it. You just have to keep doing it. And, um, you know, comedy changes, too. So I feel that there's a new type of comedy out now because, you know, with YouTube and Vines and everything, it's, I think it's a little less professional because you can be seen right away. You don't have to work in a dark club at 2 a.m. for four years before somebody sees you. You're seen right away. So, you know, everything has changed. And that's, in fact, my first novel that I wrote called Tickle Pink. I've written two novels and three uh, essay books. But um, the first one, my first novel, Tickle Pink, was about comedy in the 80s because that was, uh, that was kind of, this is my favorite sentence, my fortuitous confluence of events, because it was the birth of cable TV and stand-up comedy came together when cable TV had no money, and they said, what can I put on for entertainment that's cheap? And then they found a comedian standing in front of a brick wall with a microphone, and voila, there was a marriage made in heaven. Cheap entertainment and uh, channels that had no money. <laughs> so it was, and we had been working in the clubs for years, Jerry and Bill and Paula. Jerry Seinfeld, Paula Poundstone, and Bill Maher. They were all working before me because I had a whole career on Broadway where I was a dancer before I did comedy. But, um, so by the time cable TV came on and then David Letterman started, who loved comedy, he just wanted to have young comedians on and he was our idol. I mean, he was our, uh, our comedy god. And you were on that show 11 times. Yes, and I was on, then finally I auditioned for five years before I got on Carson. For Jim McCauley. Yes. How many auditions did you do before you got it? Oh, I gave up because he just wouldn't, you know, I always give the credit where credit is due. Um, Alex, who is Bud Friedman's wife, I used to go to the improv, and every time I would go on stage, Jim McCauley would just walk out of the room right in front of me, and he just wouldn't even wouldn't even listen. He wouldn't hear it. He wouldn't do it. How do you psychologically do I, your set after that? I just said, you know, um, there are other shows. If I don't do the Tonight Show, I'd love to do it, but I can't change his mind I can just be as funny as I can be what do you think it was about you that he didn't like I think he was dating a girl uh, at the time who was the only female comedian who was on but I don't think he wanted another female comedian on that show another young female comedian it was my guess because there were no other young female comedians on and he would just walk out and I, okay whatever so one night he was sitting with Alex and Bud and um I came on and he started to walk out and Alex Friedman said, what is wrong with you? I mean, she was so sweet. I just loved her and I love Bud. And why, why don't you listen to this girl? She's really funny. And he, she pulled him and she sat him down and he, she made him listen to my set. And uh, he finally put me on the show. It was after, I don't know, three or four years. And then Johnny loved me. And then I was a, a regular guest on the show for years until he retired. So, but things happen or they don't happen. But in the meantime, I was on other TV shows and I was on other cable networks. So I was all, I was having a career with, without that show, but that show certainly did help me. Have you ever symbolically grabbed somebody's jacket and said, I love this person. Please watch this person. I don't, I don't watch comedy that much. 
So there isn't an opportunity for, but I do have idols. I mean, one of my huge idols who just passed away was Mary Tyler Moore. That was the last time I cried was a few days ago. I mean, she was just, and I did Carnegie Hall with her and I did um, Comic Relief with her. And she was just sweet and graceful and charming and funny. And there's so many, but there's so many good female comedic actresses now because I watch movies more than you can see. I don't go to comedy clubs a lot to hang out anymore because I have a family and I have to cook dinner. And I, when I work, I go out and I work and I come home and I walk the dog. But um, one of my favorite shows that I watch now is with Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy and his son, I think Daniel Levy. And I love Schitt's Creek. It's just my favorite show. So, you know, if I ever, and I did a reading once with Catherine O'Hara and I just couldn't believe I was in the same room with Katherine O'Hara. I just love her so much. And, um, you know, there's there's uh, Amy Poehler and Tina Fey and and uh, Melissa McCarthy and Kristen Wiig and my new favorite, McKinnon. They're fabulous. They're just fabulous comedic actresses. And I see them because I watch more TV than I go out. Do you ever watch stand-up on television? No, because I, it's just, I did forever, for, I was concentrated, and even when I was, when I was first starting, I wanted to listen to people, like I got, because um, I'm so old, I listen to albums, you know, and uh, yeah, Jack Benny, I used to get Jack Benny albums out, and George Burns, and Woody Allen, and that, those are my two idols, Woody Allen and Jack Benny. You have that cast iron timing like they had. Well, I, I studied their you know, their, their performances for a really long time. And that's who I kind of, uh, I, I, I kind of grew up watching. And even though I was friends with both Joan Rivers and Phyllis Diller, and I thought they were amazing women, but they each had their very own specific style of comedy. And their style of comedy wasn't something that was um, natural to me. Were they supportive of you? Yes. You know, when you see somebody on the way up that potentially could take one of your slots. I, I don't get, I just think I have my own little slot and I have my house. I have a beach house. Why do I care? This is not a beach house. <laughs> this is the Kennedy compound here. Well, you know, I want everyone to be successful and I don't ever want to say, I don't want jealousy to come into play where it would ever. Um, I would I would think of myself as a smaller person because everyone has their time. Like um, Amy Schumer, I think she's terrific and she's finally been allowed to write her own movie and star in her own movie and be her own boss. And when I was in television, it was very difficult. People would say, well, you're funny, but you need someone to write it. You need a showrunner. You, you know, you can't do it. You this, you can't do that. And now it's kind of opened up where people are doing their own thing. So I'd like for everyone to be successful. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, 
we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Tell me a moment in your career in the beginning where you said to yourself, I'm never doing anything else again. I, I always loved thinking of a joke. And whenever I had a joke that worked and it worked on stage, it was just, a, you know, a, a fantastically satisfying moment. So I think I still get those moments whenever I have a new thought that works or a new joke that works. But when I knew that I when I finally knew that I think what I was doing was on the right track was my first Letterman appearance, because up till then, I was a dancer, singer, actress on Broadway, and people had told me how many beats to hold a note, where to put my foot, how long to hold it there, scripts, what to say, director told me how to say what I was learning to say, and all of a sudden I felt such freedom that I had thought of this five minutes of material and I had said it on national television and people had laughed and it had gone well, and I said, this is, this is what I really want to do for the rest of my life, and I was so satisfied. And then I came home, and um, the next morning, my doorman, Caesar, said, I, I saw your, um, your show on David Letterman last night. You're really funny. And I said, thank you, Caesar. And he said, when are you going to be on again? And I said, oh. I'm going to have to think of five more minutes of material, aren't I? <laughs> and I got so scared. And I said, what if I'm never going to think of another joke again? And I went, oh, Caesar, I have to go back upstairs. <laughs> I got to go. I got to think of more jokes. But, you know, Rodney said that to me, too. Rodney said, uh, we always used to talk about writing jokes. And um, Rodney was always saying, I, I'm always scared. I'm never going to be able to think of another joke. And I was in Hawaii with HBO because I used to do um, retreats for uh, when they used to take the cable people to Hawaii for their annual um, thank you for you know carrying HBO on the, before satellite and me and Robert Klein and Bill Maher used to do it all the time and Dave, Dennis Miller another friend of mine so um, I answered the phone and Rodney I said well, how did you find me here in Hawaii Rodney and he said oh I have ways uh, you know and I have to ask you a question because you would know the answer to this and I said what Rodney and he said where should I work in Vegas? Because you've worked all the places in Vegas. <laughs> Rodney, I can't believe you're calling me and asking me where I should work in Vegas. And I told him what I thought. And I, I can't remember where I said. I think I was playing the Desert Inn at that point. But um, I told him about all the different rooms and which room I thought would be the best for him. <laughs> and he said, thank you very much. I'm so glad you did. <laughs> and I said, that was, that was kind of a, a, a bizarre moment that Rodney Dangerfield would be calling me up and saying, where should I play in Vegas? He was a great guy. Well, you know what? I could never believe, because I idolized, you know, Rodney Dangerfield. And I was, luck I was lucky enough to be able to work with good comedians right before they died. But like George Burns and Bob Hope. You did the George Burns 95th birthday yeah, show. I did on CBS. And I did Bob Hope's last two uh, uh, specials for NBC. You know, one of the things I always think about with great artists and the great acting guru, Larry Moss, once said... He was my acting teacher in New York when I studied acting. The oh, best acting teacher. The greatest. I was in a Broadway show with him. I was in So Long, 174th Street, and um, Bert Sheveloff directed, and it was... Um, 
Robert Moore starred, and it was Larry Moss was his best friend, and um, Bert Shevelov, who directed No, No, Nanette, and Stan Daniels wrote the music, who was a writer uh, on the Mary Tyler Moore show, Lonnie Ackerman, who was a friend of mine who we used to take classes at Luigi together. We were all in this Broadway show, and uh, Larry Moss and I got friendly, and then he became an acting teacher, and he was the most fantastic acting teacher. It's one of the best interviews we ever had I on the show. It. He has this thing where he says that a great artist has a hole blown through them at one point in their life and they search for the art to fill the hole and then they finish it and it's filled and then the next day it's empty again and you had the hole blown through you when you were 13. Exactly my mother dying yeah that was a bad one. Do you think that was something that helped drive you? Yes that was definitely something because I had no backup plan I had my dad had married somebody who wanted me out of the house and uh, my mother had died and I decided to throw myself into dancing because I was a good dancer and I was in a ballet company when I was 11 and 12. I was skipping school and taking buses to Miami Beach to be in shows in Miami Beach when I was 13 and 14. I went When I was 14, I went to New York with my best friend, who's still my best friend, um, with her mother and we took uh, dancing lessons together in New York. And so when I was 15, I knew my way around New York and I graduated from high school early. I took 11th and 12th grades together. You graduated when you were 15. 15, yeah. And I went to, I, I had to figure out a way to keep my life together. And luckily, I was a good dancer and I loved dancing. I got my first job in Zorba when I was 16 because I was almost, I think it was about five, six months before I became a professional dancer in the National Company of Zorba. How many auditions did you do for Broadway before you got the first gig? You know, I can't remember, but not too many. And I was, uh, I used to have to go to open auditions because I was in equity. And I was, um, I got this job and I was swing dancer and Ron Fields was, was the choreographer and Cheetah Rivera was the star, Hal Prince was the director, John Ray, it was, it was fantastic, a fantastic learning experience. And I kind of went through there and um, as my dad said, uh, I brought myself up. And uh, you know, it doesn't always happen that way. So your dad wasn't in your life? You know, he wasn't, I mean, he'd answer the phone, but um, he said, you know, my life is with this woman and you're done and you go there and uh, that's, you know, I'll visit you sometimes. Or, uh, he, he passed away now too. He did the best he could with what he had and I loved him very much, but he was a strange guy. So, um, I think, you know, that kind of, it scares me because, um, I say to my daughter, I can provide you with everything except adversity. <laughs> I can't give you adversity. You've got a wonderful life. You've got parents who love you. And sometimes, you know, I see kids who have a lot less working harder than she is because she's so comfortable. And, you know, I don't know if you can have that ambition and that drive, as you said, as Larry said, unless there's something that has really gone on with you. But then I see Taylor Swift and she was born on, and grew up on a Christmas tree farm with people who loved her and she's doing OK. So, you know, whatever my daughter wants to do that makes her happy is OK. I just want her to, to love to do something. I often think to myself with my kids, I tell them I love them all the time. I support them, tell them I'm proud of them. And I wonder if that's going to make them 
less extraordinary. I the same thing because they don't. What, what do they have to overcome? I tell her she can't watch television unless she d- works. I won't. I she she's not allowed to. You know, unless she practices the piano and the guitar. And now she's in an opera. Her opera program at her school, which we had the fundraiser for yesterday. And we're very excited. We raised ten thousand dollars, and for the program, because um, I want her to go to public school because I don't want her to go. You know, be with all these elitist people. I'm doing the same thing now. Granted, the Malibu school system is a great school system, but people look at me like, what? No, I just don't. I, I This is the world, and you have to be in the world. And, you know, I just think to give her some focus in reality, um, because, you know, she's got a very comfortable life. She should be able to see, you know, people who are of different, you know, different levels of... of um, monetary satisfaction (laughs) so she can identify with them and I think that helps and I think the fact that I don't I I don't indulge her I mean a lot of and it's funny a lot of the kids who have less money have more they've got a surfboard she doesn't they've got a golf cart she doesn't you know they've got things that but you know I just don't I want her to be I want her to work for things they some people think I'm crazy they why why did and I because that's the world you have to be in the world you know, I don't, I'm not, and you know, you, you can't be in a bubble your whole life. You know, I was, I was working when I was 16, you know, that's what made me who I am. So, you know, she's going to do courses this summer and then she's going to do charity work and that's what's going to happen. She has you to guide her and be her mentor, you and your husband. Yes. When you were making the transition from dancing the comedy who were your mentors who would take you aside and say, Rita, this is fantastic, but if you adjust this this way and do this? You know, I used to work with, um, she passed away now, and I loved her so much, Marjorie Gross. She was my first writing partner, and I met her at Catch a Rising Star, and she was a very, a wonderful comedy writer. And to paint the picture of Catch a Rising Star for you all, it was a comedy club on 78th Street and 1st Avenue. And it was a little rectangular comedy club, probably was three times longer than it was wide. It had a bookcase behind the stage. There was a house band that was there for years. A lot of the times when Rita was performing, the late night people would go on like Gilbert Gottfried, and they'd just be doing a whole routine with their back to the crowd. The only person was there sometimes when I was on was my reflection. There was a big mirror and there was nobody else there. I was playing to myself. But there were also <laughs> musical acts that were on. That Rick had, Newman. Pat Benatar and you'd have people like that. And Richard like, Belzer was there all the yeah. time. It was fantastic, but the setup and the sight lines were such that you always looked to your side either way. And there was smoke because it was it was legal to smoke there. So you were always performing in a haze of smoke and to people who had too much to drink. So um, we were... We were both female comedians, and we used to uh, make it a, po- a point two or three times. We would go to uh, get together in either her apartment or my apartment, and we'd write jokes together, and we'd just make each other laugh hysterically, and we'd watch Mary Tyler Moore, and we would, when we couldn't think of anything, we'd go to the movies, and um, we'd always hang out in the clubs all night together, and Ronnie Shakes, why did everyone pass away? And they passed away very young, these people. He was my mentor, and I would listen to Ronnie Shakes, how he crafted a joke, and um, he would 
come up to me and he would say, maybe you could use this word instead of that word. And uh, he was just one of my very favorite people of all time. So you just have to find, you know, also uh, someone who lives near me, who I was friendly with, who I went to Australia with. And in fact, my husband produced a show, Larry Amaros, who wrote for Joan Rivers. He was the house MC of yes. Catch a Rising Star. He's still my good friend. Of course, Louis Ferranda booked the room for Louis. so long. I love Louis. He was the bartender then when I was there. So it was, you know, we, and I remember some people used to tell me, they'd say, could you write jokes for me? Because I could do the jokes, but I just really don't want to hang around there all night and, you know, try jokes at 2 a.m. I used to say, that's the point of it. You've got to write your own jokes. You've got to hang out there till 2 a.m. And they said, well, we don't want to do that. And I said, well, then don't be a comedian. That's the problem with the new generation. Like you said, these new stars, they do a piece that they really work on hard and then they film it and they put it on YouTube and then somebody wants to see them. And they've got two minutes. Sometimes they've got 30 seconds because it was a vine or whatever those six seconds. It's the repetition that makes you great. Every night you got to do it. When I watched your first HBO Young Comedian special, I'll never forget when I saw you do it. I'm just going to say the punchline. Sometimes they leave skid, skid marks. marks. Oh my gosh, that was my first really big joke. Uh, when, how you break up with a guy. Because I had all these boyfriends and, you know, I... I used to have to write jokes about them because that's who I was with. And I remember that joke uh, got used in a movie. I forgot which movie. It got used in a play on Broadway. Um, I remember <laughs> it was uh, how you break, if I want to break up with a boy I, or man, I never say this isn't working out for me or I don't want to see you anymore. I always say, you know, I love you. I want to marry you. I want to have your children. Sometimes they leave skid marks. That was my big, that was my ending joke for so long. And it was in a movie and in a play I was very proud and people say you know are you upset that people someone steals your joke and I said well I was a little bit because I'd worked hard on that joke and that was my big joke but I'm always writing a new joke so um you can't be you can't be that precious and there I have got notebooks upstairs and I've got you know my phone with all my notes in it and I'm always going to be doing the next joke and it's such a fractured universe that even if somebody um, does a joke that you you had not many people are going to hear it not many people are going to remember it and I just say forget about it and I write a new joke. I used to write jokes about guys not getting involved. <laughs> there was a tennis joke. He couldn't say 30 love. He kept saying 30, I really like you, but I have to see other people. Yeah, that was it. So um, I remember and I had a nut, two boyfriends in a row who said they didn't want to get involved. And I second boyfriend, I actually said, I already have a joke about this. Can you say something different? Because this is boring. Or, and so, but when I, my daughter writing songs, you know, I have to tell her what happens in her life is what's going to be in her songs eventually. And um, that's what you have to take. You have to take things that are happening. And I write them into jokes or stories or books or punchlines or whatever your creative process is. When I heard the punchline, sometimes they leave skid marks. The thing that came to my mind was I spent the summer in a wheelchair. Just the whole trajectory of the timing and then the uppercut of Woody Allen where he was talking about the bully. Well, because I used to listen to those things. I used to diagram Woody Allen albums. And I used to say, where is, where is the laugh coming? Why is it coming there? And um, I have all these notebooks that look like electrical currents because I would sit there and I'd go, oh, these two things come together at the same time. And, that, and I have all these... Someday, you know, I think I want to do some kind of book about comedy that um, because I have so many of my own rules 
um, what constitutes um, a recognition jokes, a rule of three jokes, a relationship joke, a, uh, something you relate to in a reality joke, an exaggeration joke, a visual joke. And I think my ambition is always to mix them up to keep the audience a bit off balance. Do you mind sharing with our audience some of your rules? Well, it's just when I write a joke, I put it into a category in my mind. I'm not that organized. I heard you're very organized. I heard you have notebooks and notebooks. Yeah, but they all, I can't read anything in them. They're just awful. I mean, they're, Martin looks at it because I'll remember, this is another thing that gave me an incentive because when I first came to Los Angeles, Sandy Hackett, who was a friend of mine. Buddy Hackett's son. Um, invited, he wanted to be a comedian. He used to hang around the comedy clubs. And he opened for his father. Yes, and I, um, he invited, he had a big party at Buddy Hackett's house in Beverly Hills. And I was living in what was a teeny little room that I was renting from an old friend of mine who I knew from New York, who uh, we were singers and dancers together in New York, and she had a big house, and I rented the little uh, guest house where I had to go at the back stairs, and the kitchen was in the bathroom, you know, it was just... <laughs> and I was invited to Buddy Hackett's uh, house by Sandy Hackett, and I looked around and I thought, jokes built this house. I've got to write a lot of jokes, and maybe I can have a really nice house. <laughs> and that's what I did. Wow. I said, I'm going to write a really, a whole lot of jokes, and I'm going to build a really nice house. And speaking of Vegas, Buddy used to tell me, Barry, in 1953, I was making $175,000 a week in Vegas. Wow. And when I always asked him, who's the best comedian ever? And he would always say, I am. Mm. He was very funny, Buddy Hackett. I used to like when he was interviewed on television. I remember one thing. He said, um, I want to keep making more money and they said why and he said, so to keep the rest of my money down <laughs> <laughs> what's one rule of yours of how comedy works well i'll tell you um you know i like it when it pivots on the last word when it has a concise sound on the last syllable it's just using the correct word at the end is sometimes all makes all the difference. Ronnie Shakes helped me with this joke when I, it was a joke where I said, um, my grandmother buried three husbands. Two of them were just napping. <laughs> and um, I remember the first version I had was two of them were, were just sleeping and Ronnie Shakes took me aside and got a chuckle. And he said, you know, Rita, napping is a funnier word than sleeping and maybe you should try it. And I did it and it was, it, it just worked. So, you know, you have to be careful always with the last word. And you can never, why I hate double entendres is double entendres split a vision and split a thought. So when you have a double entendre, it's never going to be funny. That's why it doesn't produce a laugh. It produces a uh, like that because it has to be a, uh, a very, very specific thought, you know. Okay, here, and I'll give you an example of a visual joke where you put two things together. And when I say um, one of my friends wanted to lose weight and she did that operation where you have that balloon put in her stomach, but she sneezed and it came undone and she flew around the room, you know. So you have a visual of a balloon. Then you have the balloon in the stomach, then you have the sneeze, and then you have the visual because you know what a balloon does, when it, and then you have the person flying around the room. So that's an example of a visual joke when all the things come together. And, um, you know, then I have different jokes, rules of three jokes, where um, my, one of my first jokes was, because I used to read books a lot and try and get ideas from books. I remember reading The Making of a Psychiatrist, and one of his... Um, 
the, the front little thing is uh, neurotics build castles in the air, psychotics live in them. And I thought those were, that was a good beginning. And then I wrote a third line, which was rule of three, my mother cleans them. <laughs> so, you know, that's the rule of three joke where you have the third thought that goes with your personality. But it has to go with your person, who you are. That's why when people say, tell me a joke, I can't really tell you a joke. I can tell you the things that I think of. But if I say two guys walk into a bar and a dog sits on it, you know, that's not me. That's something that's so far related for me, I can't even begin to say that. So that's just, I have to do things that come from me. One of the things that surprised me going back to that set where you said, I tell them I love them. I tell them I want to get married. I want to have your children. I want to have your children. Now, what shocked me was I thought it went against how you normally deliver jokes. You didn't leave them on the cliff. You said, I want to have your children. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they leave skid marks. Mm -hmm. You didn't create a beat before you delivered the punchline and it's still got an applause break. You got to do it when it feels right. Sometimes, you know, it, it could have been that particular night. Sometimes I take longer to do a punchline than other nights because an audience is like a dance partner and different audiences have different rhythms. And sometimes you can really take a long pause and they can be with you. And sometimes you can take a long pause and they can leave you. So it, you have to... Ev evaluate the kind of audience that you're working for that particular night. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money Drop that fancy car You're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. 
with exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.